We're in the thick of it. The days are getting shorter, the temperature's colder, and for me, this is always the time when I'm looking for inspiration, the kind that sustains me through the winter drabs. And for this last episode of the season, we're going to talk with the authors of three new dynamic books that feed the soul and remind us of what we're capable of. To freedom! To freedom! There's this scene from the 2004 film Frida, where a doctor forbids the iconic artist, played by Salma Hayek, from attending what is the first art showing in Frida's home country of Mexico, something that she's been wanting her whole life. If the bronchitis gets worse, it will turn into pneumonia. <coughs> Frida, under no circumstances are you to leave this bed. Frida was sick not only with bronchitis. By this time, she'd been battling the side effects of polio and a freak trolley accident that left her unable to bear children. Frida spent her entire adult life in pain. And it's only now that I've lived a little that I understand how pain, both mental and physical, can actually be a driving force to create some of the best work of our lives. We're going to talk about this and more with Ariana Davis. She's the author of a new book called What Would Frida Do? A Guide to Living Boldly. I'm also going to talk about how another iconic figure, Bruce Lee, yes, the Bruce Lee, worked through his pain to build a legacy and impart life lessons that still resonate to this day. His daughter Shannon Lee joins us to talk about her new book, Be Water, My Friend, The Teachings of Bruce Lee. And my son Hudson and I check out a spectacular, visually stunning book called Glory, Magical Visions of Black Beauty by Karen and Regis Bethencourt. Dear truth be told. Dear truth be told. Dear truth be told. Dear truth be told. I really need your help. I need your help. I need your help. I'm Tanya Mosley. Stay with us for a power-packed episode of Truth Be Told. We'll be right back. A few years ago, I remember reading something about how Madonna was like an obsessed fan of Mexican artist Frida Kahlo and a collector of her original works. And that didn't really strike me as odd. I mean, before there was even a Madonna or a Beyonce, there was Frida, mysterious and bold, rebellious, transcendent, evolving. There's no question that Frida Kahlo is an icon. Last year, a recording of Frida's voice, maybe the only one in existence, was discovered in Mexico's National Sound Library. She's reading from her 1949 essay, Portrait of Diego. Con su cabeza asiática, sobre la que nace un pelo oscuro, tan delgado y fino que parece flotar en el... And while there are a lot of books and movies and essays about her, Ariana Davis thinks there's so much more to learn from her and about her. Ariana's new book is What Would Frida Do? A Guide to Living Boldly. Ariana, welcome to Truth Be Told. Thank you so much for having me, Tanya. I'm so glad to chat with you again. Yes. So you talk about this pretty extensively in your book. But for our listeners, tell us, when did you first become aware of Frida Kahlo and what drew you to her story? So I'm biracial. I'm Black and Puerto Rican. And growing up Latina, I think Frida is one of those icons and those faces that you just kind of know of. I was aware of, you know, just her image. And I remember learning a little bit about her art in school. But it wasn't until I saw the Frida movie when I was in high school 
I rented it from Blockbuster, if you guys remember the days of Blockbuster. Oh, yeah. And I um, remember, you know, watching the movie and really being so fascinated by both her art and the way she was so vulnerable and so raw in her artwork, but also just her personal story and the many obstacles that she dealt with in her life. She was 18 when she had a, a terrible Charlie accident that led her to a lifetime of illnesses and surgeries, and she had to have her leg amputated later in life. She wasn't ever able to have children. Uh, on top of all of those things, she also had a very toxic relationship with her husband, Diego Rivera. And so she had a very complicated life, and yet she created some of the most famous artwork known in, in our mainstream culture. And she also overcame so many of those obstacles while being proudly feminist, being proudly Mexican, being mm. proudly queer. Mm-hmm. And this was all in the 1920s and 30s. And so for me, seeing the movie and learning more about her story really sparked this fascination that kind of eventually became an obsession. And I just became one of those people who anytime there was a Frida exhibit in New York or I saw something about her or read an article, I just always devoured anything I could get my hands on about her. So it was one of those like fascinations that all started with the movie, really. There's a fierceness about her that, at least for me personally, I only come to appreciate as I read all of the tragedies, as you laid out, that she went through, I mean, her body went through a lot at such a young age. And I think we often think about physical limitations, possibly limiting the way what we can do in the world. But but Frida, many people don't even know that she went through all of what she went through with polio, with this huge accident, with several instances of trying to have children and not being able to have children. There was a lot of hurt and pain in her life. But there was that fierceness that brought to life her art in a way that I think is is really hard to describe. It's why we continue to talk about her to this day, and she feels so current and so right now. Give us some context. Um, what was so groundbreaking in the moment about her work in life during her time? Because I think we can often look back on history and see the beauty and fierceness of people. But during that time, what did her peers think of her? Well, when she was alive, it's interesting, she was really more so known for being the wife of Diego Rivera. Diego was actually, Mm -hmm. he was the famous artist while she was alive, but Frida even still kind of refused to remain in his shadow during her life. She, there's one of my favorite quotes of hers that I mentioned in the book. She, you know, a reporter interviews her about being Diego's wife and she's like, you know, he might be the famous artist, but it is I who am the true artist. And she, you know, always had that spirit about her and she wasn't as well known during her lifetime until, you know, she finally started to get some acclaim towards the end of her life. She had her first New York exhibit and then an exhibit in Mexico a few years before she died. But it wasn't until after her life, even years after she died in the in the 70s and 80s that her work started to become a symbol for various movements, for feminism, mm-hmm. for the Chicano movements. It wasn't really until long after she died that people began to appreciate looking back at how far ahead of her time she was. One of the things I've been really thinking about a lot lately is she has this painting that she did in 1932 called Henry Ford Hospital about her miscarriage. And it's a really moving mm-hmm. and painful um piece of art when you look at it it's literally you know a fetus leaving her body and you can see the physical pain she's in and when you think about the fact that just a few weeks ago Chrissy Teigen was being criticized for being so open about her miscarriage on on Instagram and how people were talking about how that was a private moment and how could she and then you think about back in all the way in the 1930s Frida was painting about her own miscarriage and she I think during her lifetime was just so far ahead of her time in the way she told the story of her experiences of a woman and not only just the good parts of it. That's one of the many reasons for me she is is an icon that was just 
really breaking barriers long ahead of her time. Is this why the concept of your book is what would Frida do? I mean, you're bringing her to the current moment for us to look back at the work that she's done, how she lived her life and how we can use those as life lessons in our lives. It's not meant to be a blueprint of how to live your life. There's definitely a lot of decisions that Frida made that I ne- wouldn't necessarily agree with. Her relationship with Diego was, to- Diego, was yeah. toxic in many ways. and It was sort of romanticized in the in the movie yeah. by the way yeah it definitely yeah. it definitely was romanticized in the movie and you know I'm not saying her life should be a blueprint but what I do think is that we can read about her story and the decisions that she made and the way she did live her life so fiercely and learn from that the ways that hopefully just take some inspiration on how we can live our own lives boldly and fiercely you know for me maybe I don't agree with the fact that she took Diego back after so many, you know, things. But what I can appreciate or respect is the fact that she didn't care what anyone had to say. She didn't care what people said about their relationship. She loved him unapologetically and fiercely and passionately. And that was what she wanted to do. And she didn't care what people thought. So I think for me, there are so many lessons we can learn from her, but it's primarily just that she lived her own life her own way. And I think that by seeing the ways that she did that so boldly, you know, during a time when women were definitely not being encouraged to be bold, Hopefully, it can give us inspiration even now all the way in 2020. How have you changed through this process? I definitely think that I feel that that now that I've written a book that's called What Would Frida Do? A Guide to Living Boldly, I feel like I have to live my life boldly, right? It's like there's a little pressure there where I'm like, okay, I sometimes literally now find myself asking myself like, okay, girl, you wrote this book. What would Frida do? And like, how can you make whatever decision is the bold decision in this case? And so I think that now in my everyday life, whether it's work or whether it's my personal relationships or whatever it may be, I really find the title of the book being my own mantra in many ways. As you said, you don't want the book to to be prescriptive. It's not prescriptive. But um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the messages. The reason why I think Frida feels so present is because she has been commercialized in so many ways. And in part because, of course, she uh, had so many self-portraits of herself. And you kind of draw this line between self-portraits and selfies, you know, and wh- and how we take selfies of ourselves and how it's good to kind of chronicle yourself and know yourself in a way that really Frida was trying to get closer to by portraying herself and her art. Can you break that down a little bit for us? It came out of circumstance. She, when she was recovering from this accident at 18 and she was stuck in bed for months while she was recovering, she started to draw and then she later started to paint. And when she ran out of subjects, her parents brought in an easel and a mirror. And that was how she started painting herself because she had basically nothing else better to do. She was chronicling her own self and her own story and her own image. And she was celebrating that and she had confidence in that. She was not someone who had the standard kind of Eurocentric um, ideal of beauty and yet She painted herself exactly as she was with the famous unibrow that we all know, with the mustache, with her very sharp, what some people might call masculine features. She portrayed herself exactly as how she was. And so one of the lessons I think we can take from Frida is to maybe not alter ourselves so much and to literally present ourselves (laughs) like as we are. You know, maybe you don't need the the face tune and the Photoshop, but literally like if Frida was painting herself with that unibrow and she was proud of it and she was like, this is who I am then, you know, Mm -hmm. we can present who we are on on social media, whether it's through a selfie or or otherwise. You know, this show is all about therapy. We love therapy. Uh, We talk about it on every show. Normalized therapy. I love it. Normalized therapy, (laughs) for sure. How do you think Frida would have felt about therapy? 
I would like to think that she would have been all about therapy. One of her closest friends was Dr. Elliser, who was one of her doctors, but then went on to become, you know, her mm-hmm. one of her closest mm-hmm. friends. And if you read the letters between them, I feel like it much it almost feels like a therapy session where she's, you know, she talks yeah. about her relationship with Diego. She talks about the pain that she's feeling. She talks about how bored she is. I, I think a lot of people who are in therapy, like myself, we, you know, are told to to journal and to write your feelings down and to to find creative outlets. And Frida was doing all of those things. She was you know, journaling, you can read her journal entries still now today, I excerpt a lot of them in the book. And I think the fact that she was so open about her feelings and wasn't afraid to be vulnerable, whether it was with her friends or in her artwork, that makes me feel like she would definitely be someone who would not only probably be in therapy herself, but would probably encourage everyone around her to, to do the same. Yeah, it's the slowing down. I mean, that was one thing that really struck me in reading your book is being able to read her words and remembering that before all of the gadgets and technology that we have that keep us away from being able to have those slow down moments where you can sit down and truly write and express yourself and work through things is something that so many of us, we're just running around. We don't really have that time to do that. And so I was reminded of that in the book. You also brought up at the beginning of our conversation that Frida was queer. Tell me what you mean, especially in this moment where we are having an awakening of what it means to be queer and understanding the dimensions of queerness. Frida, during her life, obviously this was you know a different time. So there, were, I think the same labels that we have today, even the word queer or um, LGBTQ, they didn't exist back then. And so we don't really actually know what label Frida would have used to describe herself. But what we do know is that from, you know, all the research that I've done from even, you know, I also read Diego Rivera's autobiography and even just reading letters to friends. She was pretty open about the fact that she had romantic interests who were both men and women. And she had affairs with both men and women. And everything that we've come across from, again, her letters or from from stories that have been told, it never seemed like a big deal. She just was who she was. She, She didn't put labels on it. She didn't ascribe anything to it. It was just kind of a known thing. And, you know, there's rumors of that happening with everyone from she had an affair with the Russian revolutionary Leon Trotsky yeah. to Josephine Baker, which it does. I don't think that really happened. Just just I think you don't I think she and Josephine. I don't think yeah. I based on I really wanted it to be true. And that's one of the, the flings I think that I looked into the most because I was like, I would love to be the <laughs> right. one who's like, I discovered I that it too. really happened. But I think based on everything, it was just a rumor. But even still, I mean, Frida, I think, was really just someone who now we would probably call queer. But at the time, she didn't actually give that label to herself. But she was someone who I think just loved who she loved and was attracted to who she was attracted to. It just was who she was. Was there any hesitation in taking on Frida as a topic? Oh, yes. There was, For you. <laughs> there, yeah. there definitely was. I mean, there was hesitancy on the practical level, just given that, you know, I wasn't sure if I'd be able to also write a book while like also doing my day job. Um, one thing is that, you know, even though I am Latina, I'm Puerto Rican, I'm not Mexican. And so I had that mm-hmm. moment of, of asking myself, like, are you really the right person to tell the story? Should this be a Mexican writer that writes it instead? Um, you know, especially after all the American dirt drama that, that came about. That's right. Um, yeah. But for me, I, I, you know, I am proud to be Latina and she is one of our icons, you know, as someone who does probably identify as, as Latinx. And I just made sure to do as much research as possible. I traveled to Mexico City to make sure that I really um, am, immersed myself in where Frida was from and her culture and understood exactly why she loved her country so much. And then I also really, during that journey of understanding Frida's identity related to her and that the fact that people forget that she also was of two cultures, her father was German. And she, even yes. though she, you know, really embraced 
obviously her Mexican side because of her mom and because of where she grew up. She also was of, you know, two places, but she really just decided to embrace being Mexican. She changed the spelling of her name from the German spelling of Frida to just F-R-I-D-A later in her life. And so there are a lot of ways when it came to identity and just thinking about who Frida was and any any insecurities that I might have had around that, I actually found myself, the more research I did, the more I was like relating to her. So um, I think that was probably the main thing that made me pause a little bit to just make sure that I felt like if I was going to do this, I needed to make sure I did it right. What's the biggest lesson you learned from Frida as you move forward in your next endeavors as well? I think the biggest lesson I learned, Frida, in the last painting that she painted before she died, this was after getting her leg amputated, this was knowing that probably the end was near, and after everything she went through through her life, she wrote on this beautiful painting of watermelons that she that she painted, she wrote the message, Viva la Vida, which means live your life or, or long live life. And every time I think about that, I literally get goosebumps because I think about the fact that this was someone who, again... She died at 47 years old. She had literally like life through her every obstacle you could possibly think of. She wasn't able to have children, all of those things. And in the end, she still had this positive outlook of you need to live your life and live it to the fullest. And so that to me, I think really inspires me because anytime I'm having a bad day or I'm feeling gloomy or I'm like, you know, I'm just like complaining about this or complaining about that. I do think about Frida and I think about the fact that she was thrown so many worse obstacles her way and yet she still managed to have this lens to look through life of where she just wanted to live her life to the fullest. And so I think for me, it's, it's a really important reminder and one that I try to really hold on to. It's one for me too. And it was such a great reminder in reading your book. I honestly have been thinking about her every day since reading your book oh, thank and you this so very much. thing that you're saying. Thank you so much for, for reading it. And I, and I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Ariana Davis is the author of what would Frida do a guide to living boldly. As I mentioned, this is the last episode for season two, and we want to give you all some gifts from our bookshelves to thank you for being such amazing listeners. Our wise ones this season have been phenomenal, and we're giving you a chance to dig into some of their best work, including My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menachem, Big Friendship from the hosts of Call Your Girlfriend, and Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own by Eddie Glaude. We're also giving away the books you're hearing on our show today. All giveaways will happen on Instagram, so make sure you're following us at Truth Be Told KQED. Okay, I want you guys to hear something. It's Bruce Lee on the Pierre Burton Show in 1971, describing martial arts, the art of expressing the human body. To me, okay, to me, ultimately, martial art means honestly expressing yourself. Now, it is very difficult to do. I mean, it is, it is easy for me to put on a show and be cocky yeah. and be flooded with a cocky feeling and then yeah. feel like pretty cool and all that. Or I can f- make all kinds of phony things, you see what I mean? Blinded by it. Or I can show you some f- really fancy movement. But to express oneself honestly, not lying to oneself, and to express myself honestly, you know, that, my friend, is very hard to do. And you have to train. You have to keep your reflexes so that when you want it, it's there. As Burton has said before Bruce Lee, modern society didn't really combine philosophy and art with sport. That's actually part of what makes Bruce Lee iconic. And like Frida Kahlo, 
He's a timeless figure that we are continually learning from decades after his death. I had the pleasure of talking about all of this with Shannon Lee, Bruce Lee's daughter. She's written a new book called Be Water, My Friend, The Teachings of Bruce Lee. Shannon was four years old when her father died, and she writes in her book that while she never knew him in the traditional sense, she knew his essential nature. It's funny, it took me a long time to understand that this sense that I had of him as a human being, as a man, was a memory of him. I was four when he passed away. I don't have those traditional mm-hmm. memories that other people have. Like, oh, he said this thing. And I remember when he you know, laughed at this or got angry at that. I, I don't have those types of memories. But you know, those formative years from birth to four or five, you know, we are s- taking in everything through our senses, right? Like we mm-hmm. are uh, digesting the world through our feeling, through our eyes and ears and touch and all of that. And that, that I have a very deep sense of him. If people said to me, oh, what would your father think of this or that? I could almost say. Say it. You know, like, <laughs> so really strange. Well, you're right. Yes. And you write in your book that this feeling was unclouded by things like hurts and jealousies or competition or romanticized notions. And that really stuck out to me, this romanticized notions, because I'm sure as someone growing up with such an iconic parent as your parent, you're hearing more about your father and the stories through the lens of others, maybe more often than you would hear from your own family members. For sure. And in fact, as, you know, sort of the keeper of the flame and and the businesses that I run, uh, you know, for his legacy and all of that, I have people that I meet all the time that want to tell me about him and, mm-hmm. um, and say, Oh, your dad, he was like this, he was like that. And, and there's, uh, and I've gotten pretty good actually over time. Cause a lot of times these people who, who tell me these things, they didn't actually know him, but they <laughs> have heard stories mm. or the, or, or things mm-hmm. like that. And so sometimes I'll say, I'll, I just sort of sit and let that kind of like bounce off my heart a little bit. And I go like, mm, yeah, I could see that. Mm. Or, mm, no, that doesn't sound right, but but that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody has sort of this picture of him. And look, we all romanticize or or fantasize who we think our parents are when we're young. It's not to say that um, I haven't done that at points in my life, but because of sort of the purity of my sense of him. Uh, and the uh, essentialness of it, that as I've matured as a human being, I'm able to look at him and go, oh yeah, I see. That's where he was, you know, being a real human being. <laughs> yeah. you know? I want to talk to you more about that too, because you actually <laughs> say in your book, you. what I, I love is that you write about some of the things, which are quite a few that your father wasn't good at, yes. but that's called being a human being, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. And he had a temper and he was, you know, not good at housework or cooking or any, like, part of me feels like, you know, were it not for my mother, my, my poor father would have, you know, 
<laughs> would have been really Starved challenged to death to, exactly to <laughs> yeah. just like get through the basics of life. But, um, you know, no, he was a survivor, so I'm sure he would have figured some things out, but he was also a collaborator, which I really appreciate. Like he knew what he could and couldn't do, which is something that we as humans, we, we struggle with a little bit. And he was very, very good at that. You know, Shannon, you could have capitalized on your father's popularity many years ago. I mean, as I mentioned, he's a timeless figure, but but it had to be the right time for you to write a book. What was it you needed to work through to get to this point of actually writing about your dad's teachings? Wow. Um, you know, my own stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I'm a seeker similar to him. So he and I meet in that way. I had so many insecurities. I mean, as, as you can imagine, and traumas, just like, by the way, everyone mm-hmm. does, that I had to work through for myself. You know, the loss of my father at the age of four, the loss of my brother at the age of 24, and mm-hmm. then my own feelings of... uh like the fear and paralysis around being Bruce Lee's daughter and what does that mean, if anything, and issues of self-worth and self-love and self-care and all of those things. And so it took me time to get to a place where I'd been, you know, looking after his legacy for long enough that I was starting to feel confident that I was maturing as a human being, learning from my mistakes, gaining more confidence that I was sitting for longer, longer periods of time, breaking down his philosophies, applying them to him, to myself, Mm. that it Mm. finally, the time was just right. And it has all come together very beautifully, I have to say. You had to come into yourself. Yes. The title, Be Water, for those who don't know, is part of an iconic quote from your father. Mm -hmm. Let's listen. This is what it is, okay? I said, empty your mind, be formless, shapeless, like water. Now you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. In the book, you actually call this the waterway. What is the waterway? Well, the first chapter is the waterway. The book, as it progresses, it gets sort of deeper and deeper into breaking down the philosophical concepts behind the notion of being like water. But the waterway sort of hits on a number of initial principles, which are, you know, water is pliable. It is flexible. Water is unrelenting. Like even when it's being held back, the minute there's an opportunity for it to flow forward, it will. Right. Mm. And also this notion that water is essential. It's essential to life. It's essential to growth. It's essential in and of itself. And so for me, that speaks to the idea of returning to my own essential nature, discovering what that is and trying as best as possible to live, and you can substitute the word flow for Mm -hmm. live, Mm. within that nature. Yeah. (laughs) 
substituting the word live with flow. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Each chapter, as you said, deepens a lesson. So there's the waterway, the empty cup, the living void. And you know, Shannon, all of these ideas connect to each other because ultimately, I mean, what I got from this book is that it is about loosening the mind and allowing ourselves to be curious students. For sure. If you can open your mind and you can allow in new thoughts, new knowledge, new experiences, if you can sort of stay present with your experience and not overly judge it or complicate it or grasp onto it and gunk it up, that right there is huge. (laughs) You know? Well, it is. I feel like it's life's work. I mean, it's more than huge. It's sort of a, we'll never be experts. Like that is, that's kind of the mission. That's the point is that we're always learning. Totally. Always loosening. Always learning, always loosening. And, and it's a practice. And one of the things that I say is like, you look at my father and you can see the amount of physical work he put into his body just by looking at him. Yes. Right. But he put that same concentrated effort into his mind. And I think that the way that we can measure that is by the fact that he's still making an impact today. He's mm-hmm. he's been not alive now for 47 years, but he feels just as alive and just present. as present and meaningful. Mm-hmm because of the work he did in his mind, where he didn't let his mind stop him. We're, we're often so stopped by our own minds. Aren't we? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Shannon, for Bruce Lee fans, uh, what's something that they, they might read in the book that maybe they didn't know about him? I think that one thing that has been pointed out to me a number of times is if you're a pretty committed Bruce Lee fan, then you know that he injured his back quite seriously in early 1970 and that that he was told that he may never walk normally again, let alone do martial arts. Uh, But one of the things that I think a lot of people didn't know is that... um, I think they tend to think because they see him in these movies being so heroic and and you know so powerful that he just cured himself entirely healed his back entirely and that the truth of the matter is that that was not the case he he lived mm. the rest of his life with back pain and he had to care for it in order to live the life that he wanted to live in order to accomplish the things he wanted to accomplish. He had to always take care of his back, always make sure that he warmed up, that he cooled down, that he, you know, treated it when it needed treating. And so, you know, I think that's something that people don't realize. They don't realize the amount of effort and the amount of uh, difficulty that, that he went through to accomplish what he did. And there is a lesson in that about pain and discomfort for all of us. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. And in fact, my father has a quote, I believe it's in the book where he says, um, you know, we get stopped because we don't, this isn't the exact quote, but along the lines of we, we, we get stopped because we don't want to have any discomfort. Mm. And that actually, you know, if we can make friends with discomfort, if we can lean into a little bit of discomfort, then we can accomplish 
more than we thought we could. I caught all of your signposts through your book. And when I say that, what I mean by that is you definitely put up yield signs. You definitely put up stop signs to say that really, basically, they serve the purpose of saying, this is Shannon writing this book for you mm-hmm. and versus this is me writing about my father. Mm-hmm. It's it's just a slight difference. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it is you presenting your father in this way that could only come from a daughter, but also is very clear in who you are in mm-hmm. reading the book. Mm-hmm. So that has to feel good that you accomplish that because it really sounds like so much of that has been your life's work is getting to that point for yourself. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you for that observation and 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 for sharing that point of view. And, you know, the, the idea for me in writing this book was it was twofold. I want people to know the depth of my father's philosophical teachings and to know him in that way. But more importantly, I have been so healed and inspired and motivated by these philosophical teachings and Hmm. that I know that they can be useful and helpful and help to soothe people's souls and also give them some tools, hopefully, right? That they can craft practices for themselves. I'm not here to tell anyone, you know, this is how you do it, uh, full stop. I'm just here to say, here's some ideas on how to do it. Here's some things that have worked for Bruce Lee. Here's some things that have worked for me. And I hope you discover what works for you. And I got involved in all of this, you know, looking after my father's legacy because of these words, because this has been nourishment for me and I want it to be nourishment for others. Shannon Lee is the author of Be Water, The Teachings of Bruce Lee. Thank you so much, Shannon. Oh, thank you so much. All right, Hudson. What story are we going to read today? Bryson from Arkansas, the HBCU kid. At the tender age... Recently before bedtime, my seven-year-old son Hudson and I have been reading from a new book called Glory, Magical Visions of Black Beauty, written and photographed by Karen and Regis Bethencourt of Atlanta, Georgia. Inside are these visually stunning images of black children in colorful fashions that hearken to our African heritage, and they're photographed in the most regal poses. We caught up with Karen and Regis to find out more about the inspiration behind the book. We think of ourselves as cultural storytellers, documenting not only the world as we see it, but also imagining a world we want to see. For generations, black culture, black identity, and black hair has often been under-celebrated in the Western world. We didn't just want to question traditional beauty standards, we wanted to shatter them. We wanted to create images that flew in the face of the established spectrum of acceptable standards of beauty. With our pictures, we wanted to tell a story of a people who for centuries were artists and artisans, strategists and intellectuals, warlords and warriors, kings and queens. In glory, our photos of young innovators illustrate our royal past, celebrate the glory of the here and now, and even dare to forecast the future. These change makers, some as young as three years old, are changing policy while redefining standards and ideas along the way. 
Seeing the look on a child's face when they see a version of themselves they never knew existed or was even possible is a priceless gift. We hope it will be our legacy for years to come. We really hope that readers will be able to see the beauty and diversity of Black kids around the world. We hope that the kids viewing the book will be able to see themselves reflected in the stories and that it inspires them to overcome any obstacles that they may face. Thank you, Karin and Regis Bethancourt, for this book, Glory, Magical Visions of Black Beauty. It is a wonderful gift this season for any of the children in your life. Truth Be Told is produced by Susie Racho, Issa Mendoza, and Katie McMurrin. KQED's leadership team includes Erica Aguilar, Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. And as always, a big thanks to Kiana Mogadam. Truth Be Told is a production of KQED in San Francisco. I'm Tanya Mosley. Hey, y'all. I'm Isa, the engagement producer for Truth Be Told. And I want to thank you so much for listening to the show all the way through the credits. And since I have you here for just a few more seconds, I have a favor to ask. KQED wants to learn more about how you listen to podcasts and what you love about them. So we'd appreciate you filling out a survey that we have out. It's at kqed.org slash podcast survey. It'll be a huge help for us and everyone who makes podcasts at KQED. Again, that link is kqed.org slash podcast survey. Thank you so much.